What's happening, my dysfunctional family members out there listening? Welcome to the newest episode of View from the Hill. Today, my guest is the truly amazing and talented Jack Wright. I'm excited to finally get to know this man better, not only because of how highly everyone speaks of him, but also for the long list of items that are on Jack's resume. Too much to list. Having his work strongly influenced by the culture of the Appalachian Mountains, Jack is an actor, documentary filmmaker, musician, and a professor here at our own Ohio University. So put on your blue-collared shirt and pack up your lunch bail. We're headed to coal country. It's View from the Hill. I'm on my way. Down in the valley, about a mile from me Where the crows no longer cry There's a great big earth moving monster machine Stands ten stories high The ground he can eat, it's a scythe Takes out a hundred tons at a bite he can dig up the grass, it's a fact But he can't put it back They come and tell me I've got to move To make way for that big machine But I ain't moving unless they kill me I kill the fish in my stream But look at that big machine go that shady grove, a long time to grow. He can rip it out with one whack, but they can't put it back. Never was one to carry signs, picket with placards, walking lines. Maybe I'm behind the time. Bet your sweet life Gonna hear from me Cause I ain't gonna take it laying down Cause I'm getting tired of seeing rocks that bleed On the bare guts of the ground Ain't gonna sell my soul So they can strip out another tiny little vein of coal Gonna move out of my tracks Cause they can't put it back They can't put it back They can't put it back
How's it going, everybody? What's happening? You're listening live, View from the Hill, www.viewfromthehill.com. I'm sitting down. He's right across from me, Jack Wright. How you doing, sir? I'm doing great, considering that it's uh, Blackberry winter, and looking down the view from the hill, it's chilly and damp out there, and it's good to be inside. I know. I was I was walking to the gas station earlier today, and I passed passed a woman and she said i didn't realize it was winter again yeah i know it's it's one of those but yeah we're here i think it stopped raining so so we're gonna be good i've had one episode where the rain caused a blackout during the episode oh so i don't think that's gonna happen though. yeah there's no thunder out there now but uh i'm i'm really pleased that you invited me to be on i've listened to your show and Really enjoyed. I, I really enjoyed the thing you did with your mother on Mother's Day. That was a great thing. That was a fun episode. And of course, I've uh, always been a big fan of D. Jones and uh, listened to some of the other shows too. So I know he's it's a, a real fan. treat to be. He's a fan here. of yours too. I miss him. You say he's back in Ohio now. <laughs> he is back in Ohio and he's listening right now. Oh, great! Well, hello, <laughs> D. Good, to, good to have you back in the. State. I, I I don't like to call it a Buckeye state because it usually means football. <laughs> That's how people take it. <laughs> Welcome home is what I say. Yeah. The OH. Well, I'm I'm really glad to have, have had you come here too. It's it, since when I started this this thing. Uh, before I even had an episode, I had a calling out of anyone who'd be interested. Um, you know, I, I thought even back then it'd be great to have you as a guest, but I never thought you'd reach out and you said, hey, I'd love to be a guest. And so I wanted to make sure I was up and running and had it going on here before I had you on. Well, and I appreciate that. I, I love the feel of your show. It's, it's really nice. It's been a lot of fun, definitely. So let's, uh, you know, let's get to know you a little better. I know you a little bit, but not as not as actually much as, as I as I kind of wish I, I did. Um, but let, let's let uh, get to know you, everyone together. You know, where are you originally from? Uh, a little bit south here, right? Yeah, um, I'm from, uh, it's about 230 miles uh, southwest of here, uh, off Route 23 south. Uh, it's Wise County, Virginia, which is the next county after you leave Kentucky going into Virginia on Route 23, it's it's the first Virginia county you come to. Gotcha. And it's uh, a coal mining area. I grew up in a coal camp uh, in my early years in a little community called Glay Morgan, which was a coal mining community. And um, and later on, uh, we moved into town, into, into the town of Wise, and I course went to high school there and, and uh, also went to college there there was a, a really good school there so I went to college there a few years and uh, was lucky enough in high school to be around some some talent uh, in grade school I was always a singer always cutting up and and fell in love with Elvis Presley when, when he came along. and So uh, you're telling me. And just, uh, I used to... Because of his music in, or because of his moves? Well, it was his it was his music because I couldn't see his moves because we didn't have a TV and he hadn't been on TV yet when I first heard him do Heartbreak Hotel and, <laughs> and Blue Suede Shoes. Uh, 
my mama got me a pair of blue suede shoes and I was only allowed to wear them two days a week <laughs> and uh, they were blue they were beautiful they were beautiful dark blue suede shoes flip tops you don't see those anymore um, but I, I loved Elvis uh, before that I had been tuned in as a really young boy to cowboy music on in movies you know we used to go mm -hmm. to the open air theater what we call open air which is a drive-in movie theater okay and then there was a couple of local uh, theaters we went to, and I've always been lucky through my life. I've I've run into people that were sort of my heroes. Um, uh, when I was in the third grade, I think uh, I ran into um, a cowboy named uh, Lash Larue. He came and put on a show at at our local theater, and then a bunch of us kids waited back in the alley so when he, him and his girlfriend went downtown to eat we followed them <laughs> and uh we were just giddy to be you know he was one of our uh movie heroes lash and, and larue lash larue and he 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 lashed that whip and he was a pretty good guy <laughs> uh sweet guy he looked um he looked apart and um mm -hmm. and he was the good guy that wore black you know usually it was uh the good guys wore a white hat, but he wore a black suit right. and a black hat and, and was great with his whip. And he had a great sidekick named Fuzzy. So I got to sit down and, and have supper with him. He invited me into the Liberty Cafe right there in the middle of Norton, Virginia, about probably less than 100 yards where I was born. <laughs> I was born there on Main Street. Uh -huh. Well, I don't guess they call it Main Street, but it was... the the uh, hospital was right there, not far from the Liberty Cafe. <laughs> so, Eat, eating with eating with the idol. Yeah, the grade B movie star. <laughs> <laughs> but he was, you know, he was the real deal to me. So you already said, um, you know, the area uh, you you were from there and brought up, you know, big coal coal mining area, um, and, and a lot of your music uh, definitely. Has that in you? De you had the the project Music of Coal, which we'll talk about uh, uh, later a little bit. Uh, but you know, that's something deep rooted in in a lot of the work that you do. Um, were there were there uh, local um, influences? Music music being made all around you, uh, other than you know your Elvis, obviously, but but actual local around in your area was Not the coal mining producing. <clears throat> There, there probably was, but I wasn't exposed to it at first. Mm -hmm. The only music I was exposed to at first was uh, music from church, singing hymns, and my mother sang a few little ditties. She was a school teacher, and um, uh, then uh, music that I saw cowboys sing in the movies. Right. Cowboy cowboy movies were big back right. in those days, and so I began to mimic those mm -hmm. uh, don't remember any of them now but I re remember really liking how my voice sounded uh, and you know that that helps when you're singing if mm -hmm. you're happy with your voice uh, maybe nobody else was but I was so I enjoyed singing for myself and uh, <clears throat> and bluegrass music and old-time music and and country music um, I heard on the jukebox in town, like my 
my aunt had a, a restaurant in the middle of town. It was one of those blue plate specials. She served breakfast, lunch, and dinner, mm -hmm. and also had beer. And it wasn't a beer joint, but it was a place where people came to eat. Mm -hmm. And uh, and there was a great jukebox there. So there was a mix of pop, popular music and country music. So I got a, a little bit of that. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the radio is all we had back then. There was no TV to speak of. Well, let's fast forward a little bit because I always, you know, associate you with the six string. Uh, you know, you're plucking away yeah. on the guitar and see you singing. But we were talking a little earlier, and uh, what was your first instrument? I you were telling me it was it was more of a, a drumming thing, right? You were right. My uh, when the you know the the coal mine economy has been boom and bust, boom and bust. And right now it's in bust, of course, <clears throat> and it probably was is you know fading out. But back then, uh, in the early fifties, it was bust, and my father lost his job. So we he went down to Birmingham, Alabama, Mountain Brook, as a matter of fact, uh, a little town outside of Birmingham, and he got a job there. So he moved us down after a few months mm -hmm. after school was out. So I started the fourth grade in Bur in Birmingham, in Mountain Brook. And there was a man, uh, was one of my buddies, his dad played a ukulele. And it was one of the few times I'd seen a stringed instrument. I'd seen someone play a guitar before, but, uh, but this guy really made it, uh, ukulele sound really good. Made and, it sing. And sing. <clears throat> and I enjoyed that. And then uh, the high school kids uh out at the park they uh they played ukuleles and sang and that just intrigued me a lot but of course i never had a ukulele but but i was drawn to the drums in the beginning um we finally got a television and i could see certain shows and and i just loved the drummer i'll, t I'll tell you uh, um the the show that I really enjoyed that that uh, affected me was um, uh, Ricky Nelson his family was on and, and at the when he started playing music they had a, a at the end of each show he would sing one of his songs mm -hmm. and they became popular his and I just loved the drums I thought that would be great to play <clears throat> but I couldn't afford a trap set so one Christmas, my mother got me some bongo drums. Bongos, bongos. Right. That's, That's back during saying. the the beat era, and uh, bongos were uh, a really cool thing. <laughs> and and I loved playing them. It was just a lot of fun. And then um, and then some boys in town formed a band, and uh, and I brought my bongos. But I was also a singer, so when I wasn't playing the bongos, I was standing up and singing. Uh, because I didn't know how to play a guitar, knew how to play the piano just a little bit, but never was really good on it. I would love to to get some photography proof of that. I would love to see you rocking some bongos out. Be, I think there is one that'd picture. Treat. That'd be a treat. <laughs> yeah, uh, and we had a good time. And the name of our band, our first band, we had a piano player, saxophone player, trombone player. And me on bongos and my best friend Lonnie on a trap set. He was the drummer for the high school marching band. Uh -huh. 
And uh, we didn't even have a guitar at that time. That's a wild band. Yeah, it was. And and we were doing uh, Ray Charles, The Nighttime is the Right Time. To oh, that's great. Be with the one you love. And, uh, of course, what did I say? And we developed that later. But uh, the piano player was great. He was really good. And he was a good honky-tonk and, and uh, uh, boogie player. So, mm-hmm. so we... We had a lot of fun. Of course, uh, we named our band the Mistakes because Mistakes. we did. We were very humble and and we weren't that good, but we played for a lot of functions around town. You know how they want free music, so that's a good name. I like that band name. Yeah, the Mistakes. That sticks. That would go with 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 other band. I mean, you know, <laughs> any band can kind of use that. That's a yeah. good band name, but. <laughs> Fitting also with hearing right. who, who all, what all instruments were in it. And, and you, you know, you got a bongo player for God's sakes. That's awesome. <laughs> it and was so fun. You're in coal mining country, but, but uh, you know, it had crept in and the beats were pretty cool, huh? You said. Yeah. Uh, you were a fan of those guys. Yeah. Uh, the whole beat generation movement was, was happening and it was sort of just sifting through the air. It was... It was uh, something that nobody wanted to admit to. It was like very, uh, it was out of bounds, Mm -hmm. off base. And uh, so anything we could find about uh, Jack Kerouac or the Beats, uh, we just thought it was great. And and so we were drawn to that. And and that was part of the bongo thing is is like... uh, they had bongos. What yeah. TV I saw of the Beats. Of course, Hollywood picks up on the Beats, and it's bongos and a, a cat hat and, mm-hmm. and, you know, dim lights and all that. So when did you finally, uh, you know, start playing playing a little bit of guitar? I, I know that, uh, you know, I think you were saying, uh, telling me earlier that uh, Dylan was a big influence. Right. Um, is, is he one of the reasons, you know, you kind of wanted to venture out and finally get the guitar? Or was it really just, you were saying it was boom and bust economy? Was it you just waiting until it was boom so you could afford a guitar? Well, when we moved back from Alabama back home uh, to Virginia, to Wise County, um, you couldn't just walk into a store and buy a guitar. They just weren't readily available. It's, you know, small communities, mm-hmm. four or five stores in the county and there might have been one or two guitars in the whole county right uh, in terms of just walking in and buying one you would have to do it mail order unless you were in a big city or something of course we never were and they were sort of expensive too we didn't have a lot of money so finally um my best friend in high school was was named lonnie rush and and his dad worked in columbus as a as a a carpenter and a maintenance. He he kept he took care of apartments and and made sure that everything was painted and everything was right. So he was an electrician, a plumber. We tarred roofs. We did a lot of things. So uh-huh. I went up to Columbus and worked for a summer and um, and he paid me weekly in cash and I lived in his house with Lonnie and he fed us. So I started saving up money, and I, I bought a guitar. And then when I returned to school, uh, my other good buddy, Tom Callis, his dad had bought, bought him a silver tone electric guitar from Sears. Mm-hmm. And so we both had little guitars and amps. And Ooh, so uh, we decided, 
And Lonnie by then had bought a trap set. Mm -hmm. So we decided to start a band and, uh, and, and I knew a lot of songs. So I, I was a rock and roller then. And I did a lot of, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis and, uh, Tutti Fruity, all Rudy, and uh, a lot of just you know rockabilly stuff. Absolutely, and and uh, and then we added the saxophone player from the old band, The Mistakes, and um, bring some horns and, in. And we never had a bass player per se back in those days. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, basses were even harder to find than that and there okay. weren't many people playing bass right uh maybe string bass and bluegrass bands but uh electric around the county there was really no bass players so we played for a lot of high school things and then we started making the what we call the dine and bounce route we started playing in these old dives where the drunks would go and we would go there and play songs for them to dance by and we would get paid. We would do mm -hmm. two or three sets a night and Friday and Saturday night, we might make 10 or 12 bucks a piece. And that was a big deal. But uh, then you had to watch the, all the smoke and all the dancing and fighting and uh -huh. all that. It, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was very, uh, it was, it was an education. <laughs> I'll never forget one time uh, these two women got in a fight over a man. And this one woman hit this other woman, and she got the other woman that got hit. She was down on her knees. And then the other woman grabbed her by the hair of the head and started pulling her around the room on her knees. And I felt they were both drunk. I felt really sorry for them, especially for the woman who was getting her hair pulled out. I mean, back then, though, were you like, this is the greatest place <laughs> yeah, ever? Yeah, right. It was a big deal because we were all underage. And right. these here, these grown-ups were just rowdy. They were having the time <laughs> Wild. of it. You know the coal miners and whoever. Uh, it, it was a. They were some rough places, but we were young and and clean behind the ears, and <clears throat> so and, and none of us drank. You know we were uh -huh. too too young to drink, and so. Uh, so in a coal mine town like that, though, it, you know area like that, that doesn't stop you though. There wasn't any like, eh, you know, give me a little thimble of the of the good stuff. Even though I'm underage, you know, it's not just... Uh, I'm, I'm sure that might have happened, but I, I didn't uh, ever drink until I got to college. Gotcha. I, I didn't drink at all in high school. I didn't smoke. I still don't smoke. I'm, I've never been a smoker. That's... Congratulations to that. Well, I, I... Not many people have been able to hold off that temptation. I, I thank my father for that. He and my mother were smokers, and... Uh, one morning when I was in the first grade, I came downstairs and uh, from bed and I poured uh, half a glass of milk and uh, and then I began to chug it down and I'd, I'd poured a glass and there had been a cigarette butt in the bottom of it oh. with ashes. <clears throat> and from then on, I, I that did it for me. That, that I, was I, it. I was never tempted to smoke <laughs> after that. Um, you know, I, I want to take a little step back about, um, you know, this area that you came from and, and how you're saying there was the coal mine going on, a uh, big part of that, that area, a uh, big part of the economy. You can hear that a lot in your music. Um, I want to go back and talk about that song 
uh, that we heard just coming right off the gate there, They Can't Put It Back. Uh, that was something you did on uh, Music of Coal, which was a, a project you put together, correct? Right. I started it in 2005, and it came out in 2007. Um, can you can you give us a little bit of a background on that on that whole project, kind of? Sure. Um, uh, back uh, when I was in college, uh, well, even before college, the folk music boom happened, and so people it was okay to play acoustic instruments on TV, and guitar and banjo and all of that became very popular. Uh, in the mainstream mm -hmm. and uh before that uh my generation had been taught to sort of look down on country music and look down on uh old time music or bluegrass music because we were trying to get above that culturally it was something mm -hmm. to be ashamed of when i was growing up it wasn't cool and uh so when the kingston trio came in and all that uh, that loosened things up. That helped us show us a way back to our culture uh, by that osmosis and then Bob Dylan. Mm -hmm. But uh, when I was in college, I started um, singing a lot of folk songs and learning a lot of folk songs. And I also started being drawn to mining songs. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, so I collected a few a few mining songs. I want to stop in there, uh, yeah. a little bit. So mining songs, you know, I, uh, of of course uh, we know uh, there's songs always. There's been railroad songs that the workers sing uh, while on the railroads. Is that something that you're you're talking about too? Is that what a mining song is? Sort of what the guys would sing while in the mine? No, not doing? not very much. Uh, uh, a lot of the uh, early songs that I came across were written by coal miners. Okay. Uh, in fact, one um, guy from Jackson, Kentucky, who moved down in West Virginia, I mean Jackson, Ohio, uh, just not far from here, uh, he was a Welsh coal miner in, in, in West Virginia. Uh, he, he was one of those early guys who sung in the mines and wrote songs in the mines. Uh, so there was that going on. Right. As I said it, you know, of course, I'm not trying to uh, say, you know, sort of a Disney theme where there's a bunch of coal miners all you <laughs> right. know, merrily singing a song <laughs> while they work. But uh, I, I do know that that uh, in the past it's been common for for sort of uh, songs and hymns to help with uh, the rhythm of working and just the rhythm, the rhythm of working and, and getting through it and, yeah. and stuff like that and keeping them uplifted. Um, so I was wondering if that was sort of a similar thing with these not, mining songs. Not so much as work songs in the mines that I know of. There might have been two or three that were that way, but mostly it was entertainment and it was about the job. So, um, for instance, back in the olden days, there wasn't a lot of noise back in the mine because it was pick and shovel and dynamite. Mm -hmm. And there might be rails in and rails out, but, but a lot of times it was pony in or horse in and mule in and mule out. Mm -hmm. So it was uh, quiet. It was relatively quiet. So if you were working back in there and you were had a break, um, you might write a song or sing a song. And that ha I ran into miners who said they did that. Mm -hmm. But as the 
as things were mechanized, um, there was more noise in the mines, so miners didn't write inside the mines anymore. And, uh, and then you had people like uh, Merle Travis, who was around mining, and he wrote 16 Tons, one of his most famous songs. Uh, he wrote about coal mining, coming from coal mining, but he, he was never a coal miner, as far as I know. I see. I see. Okay. Um, but this came about, too, that, that um, as a project, I was, I was reading the booklet um, about here, and this came about someone um, sort of, this was a, a collaborative project, correct? This, this song, Music of Coal? Yeah. I, um, I was the producer on it, but I collaborated with a group of people to put these songs together and, and produce it in a little studio, a really fine studio in Big Stone Gap. Uh, Virginia with uh, Maggard Sound Studio and, and they uh, it was a really great studio. It was a great experience working with uh, Alan Maggard and his dad and um, and I'd known them for a long time. They had done a lot. They had started in their living room mm -hmm. recording people and mm -hmm. had developed into a, a really... Where all great recording studios yeah, start. Yeah, exactly. In the living room. So, so we had that going on, but it was the idea of the Lonesome Pine Office on Youth were doing projects to get youth involved in the culture. Mm -hmm. And so uh, uh, the executive producer was, was Paul uh, Cusco, and he raised some money from the Virginia Humanities Council to do those books of photographs of coal mining camps and then he decided to do something with music. And so I had recorded a lot of coal mining songs through the years as sort of a folklorist mm -hmm. type of approach. And I'd collected them and I knew some and I sang some. So he asked me to produce the album. It started out to be one single album, one CD. And we got into it and uh, I, collected about 160 tunes of course we couldn't put out that many but so it ended up being a larger uh project we, we recorded 46 songs on two cds mm -hmm. and we started i started with the old and came to the new yeah that's what i noticed with it it's, it, it comes in two volumes and it, and it sort of seemed like volume one uh what was the older stuff and then volume two sort of was uh the new artist's uh, uh, doing the genre and keeping the tradition uh, uh, of that style of music. Yeah. Uh, really a great project. I, I've been listening to it throughout uh, the week, uh, you know, getting ready for the show as I do with, with the guests that are coming on. And uh, uh, really great, really great. But you can understand why, um, you know, I think you were saying it wasn't cool. You know, the, the music wasn't cool back then. Uh, right. The country and bluegrass. And, uh, it's un it's depressing. Yeah, uh, you were saying yeah. it's, it's stories usually um, about coal mining. Coal mining songs were were commonly about coal mining. That's a that's a common theme. Just yeah. stories about their day to day stuff, their life, and uh, it's it's not good uh, for the most part. Yeah, some of it's light, like sixteen tons is sort of a tongue in cheek, 
another day older and deeper in debt, it, it laughs at itself, but it's really pretty serious stuff. Yeah, not too many uh, woohoo, yay, we're coal miner songs. Right. right. Uh, so, so you got that going on, and uh, so it never was um, a profitable commercial venture if you decided to put out a coal mining song. Right. And so I'm sure not many studios thought, you know, like no one wants to be sitting around listening to this depressing right. stuff. Nobody but people like me. <laughs> I seem to uh, uh, be drawn to that uh, more uh, darker side of life. Well, it's interesting, too, how um, things change just throughout the years, because there's obvious differences um, between, you know, when the music in the 1940s was coming out about uh, you know, the coal mining music, and then now listening to it and, and appreciating not only uh, uh, the music of it, but really understanding what was going on back then. And uh, it, it does sound like, like a rough time, you know, um, the, the whole idea that, that kind of people are taking advantage of, uh, hey, we're going to come in here and make you rich. You're going to love it. You're going to love it. And then Oh, you don't have anything more to offer anymore. We're out of here, and then right. you're you're broke. It's it's done. They're gone, and people have been given you know incurable sicknesses because of it, and uh, black lung, pneumoconiosis. Yeah, put put their lives on the line uh, for these these kind of coal companies that they don't give a shit about you really, and uh, that's a deep message that's heard throughout a lot of these songs. Right. Um, you know. So everything that has happened progressively in terms of labor in the coal industry is because of the men fighting for it, right. the union, the men and the women. The women were all played big parts in helping organize and strike. Mm -hmm. uh, they really played a big part of that. And, and so I tried to reflect that in some of the songs that we put on the, uh, the, the project. Uh, you surely can. I mean, it's it's an emotional, uh, uh, you know, group of songs. Yeah. Um, while you listen to it, uh, so I did. I was able to find uh, some lighter songs. Uh, Riding on a lizard in a thirty-inch coal. See the cable sparkling. Watch the little wheels roll. Now, Lord have mercy on a miner's soul down on his poor knees in a thirty-inch coal. I mean, you know that that's. That's having fun with That's it. cute, yeah. Right. And, and it's a sweet song, but it doesn't ignore the danger and the right. trepidation. And uh, and so um, so there's that side of it. And then a, a good friend of mine wrote one about a coal town Saturday night, about miners going out and dancing on Saturday night. And, letting uh, loose. And letting loose. And, and, you know, square dancing and buck dancing and all that. So it's... You know, there's uh, that lightened the load up a little bit, right. but there, you know, it's hard. I mean, the songs about death and dying and uh, all the disasters that happen. There's, you know, whenever there's a disaster, there's usually a, a coal mining song written about it. Mm -hmm. Whether we hear it or not is something else. But there's a lot of coal mining lore out there. Right. We're going to listen to some more songs from that project. Uh, you know, before we do, before we go far on that, we're going to rewind again, though, because you're showing me some of the first stuff uh, that you that you have recorded, and it wasn't really coal mining songs. You were doing, no. the, doing, doing the fun stuff. Yeah. And uh, 
So we are going to take a break here. We're going to listen to first, actually, we're going to rewind a bit and uh, we're going to listen to some of this early stuff you're recording. Uh, the first one we have up is uh, that Bright Lights uh, song. You want to you yeah, talk I'll, I'll talk that? a little bit about that. Um, when when uh, we started listening to the radio, you know, everybody had a radio. And I used to take our little radio to bed. It, it was uh, it was a little, it's about the size of a shoebox, and it was red plastic. And I would take, and it was a tube radio, small tubes. It wasn't a big radio. And I would put it in the bed with me. And I didn't want to wake up anybody in the house, so I pulled the covers over. Mm -hmm. And I would listen to WLAC, which was a Nashville station that played a lot of blues. And I just thought that was some of the best stuff ever. And it was there that I heard one of the great minimal blues players. He was a minimalist. Mm -hmm. uh, his name was Jimmy Reed. And he was from Mississippi, but he had moved to Chicago and he was he played electric and he had he also played uh, harp uh, and I just fell in love with his music it just hit me right in the center it was like wow this is this is where Elvis is getting his stuff you know it was like it was so minimal and and reached you in such a deep way mm -hmm. and that was some of the first music I learned so uh, I learned it off the radio because nobody around me that I knew was doing it. <laughs> well, we're going to listen to this, Bright Lights, one of these first things you had recorded. Um, and then we're going to listen to another one. Uh, you brought some songs here with you today, and so we may be going, um, you know, skipping around in time. But it's going to be followed up by a song um, called I Shall Be Released. Um, that's by one of your bands, The Payroll Boys. Yeah, that was a band I was in from... About 1977 till about 1984. Okay. Uh, so we're going to listen to some from Jack Wright, who's here with me on View from the Hill Live. You're listening www.viewfromthehill.com. We're going to take a break here and listen to these two songs. We'll be right back. Three, four.
Crying 
www.viewfromthehill.com. You can listen to all the past episodes. My episode today with Jack Wright will be up tonight. You can listen to everything else. We got D. Jones, Michael Retushin, Mike Copeland, MC Schwartz. We sat down and talked with them, and it's been a blast. Tonight I'm having a blast with Mr. Wright here. We just listened to a couple of songs there. Uh, that Bright Light song, that kind of bluesy. Uh, song that's going to be on my playlist uh, for a while now. I was going to oh, say great. for the rest of the week, but probably longer than that, actually. Great. And then uh, we have that version, I Shall Be Released. Um, an, a great tune. Takes it more down to a, to a sort of a gospel sound there. And that's with uh, your band, the Payroll Boys. Right. And that was uh, one of the first bands. Or no, that was uh, the one in... Uh, that was... That was probably the the last official band that I ever had. Okay, uh, your last group yeah, band. Yeah, after that I've been pretty much solo. I sit in with a few people, but I usually just play by myself. Where were you guys, uh, the Payroll Boys, where were you located at? We were, we were located in Letcher County, Kentucky, and Wise County, Virginia, and Scott County, Virginia. So we came from different places. Uh, the banjo player was from Whitesburg, uh, the bass player was this real skinny guy named Sonny mm-hmm. Houston, mm-hmm. and he came from Hemp Hill, Kentucky, where they used to grow hemp back when it was legal. All right. And we called him the Hemp Hill Hornet, <laughs> and he was he was a great singer and and great musician. And Roger was on the banjo, great banjo player. And then uh, there was a an older fiddler in our band that was uh, the best musicians amongst us. Marion Sumner, but he wasn't on that cut. And then there was a, a mandolin player named Jack Toddle who lived over in Scott County, and he, he later went on to start the first um, degree in bluegrass music in the country at East Tennessee State University. He started a degree program there. So. Oh, right on. That's amazing. That's very, very cool. Sounds yeah. like a, a, a good group of people, especially, I mean, especially if everyone's calling one of them the Hemp Hill Hornet. I yeah. mean, that's got to be... <laughs> It's got to be a fun group. And he did his share of the hemp hill, too. (laughs) (laughs) Now, we had a lot of fun, and uh, we played regionally. We played a few festivals. We weren't really bluegrass. Mm -hmm. We we did a lot of contemporary and folk and even some lyrics that were rock and roll, but Mm -hmm. we weren't, if bluegrass aficionados heard us, they would not call us, Ah, them boys ain't bluegrass. That's probably what they would say. But, <laughs> but, but finally, people got adjusted to us, and so we played uh, East Tennessee, Knoxville, Atlanta, 
Lexington, Kentucky, um, and all around uh, eastern Kentucky and southwestern Virginia. Mm -hmm. So we didn't go big time. We just got together on weekends, and we never were a full-time band. But we were all very professional and tried to be professional in how we put our shows on. Obviously, Hempel Hornet. Yeah. Very professional. <laughs> so um, I'm going to kind of switch gears here a little bit. I said I was going to transition awkwardly during our downtime there. I told you that. And so here it is, the awkward transition. We're going to switch gears because <laughs> there it is. Um, you know, you're a uh, uh, Sharon. Um, your wife has has uh, worked with my, my mother. Right. Um, but actually, I... Um, you In know, fact, I, I, we owe your mother a great debt because Sharon didn't have a job and your mother recommended her for Hawking College uh, teaching. And so Sharon got a job and started her college career teaching thanks to your mom. So we're eternally grateful to Denny for that. Good people helping good people. Yeah. That's what it's all about. But even from that story, so then that takes it back even further, which, you know, I've been kind of embarrassed. I mean, I've been calling my parents all week, like, asking them questions, you know, saying, you know, well, what's, what's Sharon do? Oh, she's a fiction writer. Oh, she writes, writes stuff. Okay. Because I need to have stuff because I don't know you as well as... Yeah. Right. As, as our history dictates yeah, that I should. I'm an old man, and you're you're a young man. I should know. Our history, <laughs> though, dictates that I should know you a little bit better. Uh, but um, we were doing a video um, for one of our tracks, The Dysfunctional Family, uh, the hip-hop group I'm in. We were doing a video for one of our tracks with D. Jones, actually, uh, Ohio. Uh, and it's a song all about Ohio. And one of the uh, scenes actually takes place on... Uh, the, the the roof of the uh, school of film yeah the building there and um, that's how your name came up so I knew you as D Jones's uh, uh, film professor right at, at school at Ohio University and so we've been talking about all this coal mining music all your music but you've also got a strong passion uh, for film as well right right um, not so much anymore but I, I... Uh, taught film for 22 years and and so I had a great passion for documentary film mm -hmm. more than uh, narrative film or Hollywood film I, I love Hollywood movies or those two hour movies that are dramatic they're mm -hmm. not just Hollywood but uh, I love those kind of films but my heart is in documentary and I love the oralness of documentary and the storytelling ways that you can work with filmmaking documentary. And so um, I developed this course that became quite popular and uh, it's been copied and, and now uh, several schools are using it called the personal documentary. Mm -hmm. And I, I, the first time I taught it at OU at Ohio University, uh, Derek Jones, Aglius D. Jones, D. Jones. Was, was one of my students, and I couldn't ask for a better, it was a small class, and he just put together this incredible uh, story about the house that he grew up in. Right. Up in... Uh, up in Youngstown. Up in Youngstown. Mm -hmm. And it's just a powerful, powerful film. And, and uh, That's great. 
and he made me look good because he's such a talent. And, um, and so all of those films that were produced in that class, it ended up, uh, a lot of them became thesis films because they got into their own story instead of telling someone else's story or some fiction thing they made up. A lot of the students got so involved in, in the story that they were telling, which was a personal story. I wanted them to make something that meant something to them instead of going out into the county and making something about uh, a pizza maker or this or that or the other. I wanted them to get something in, that meant something to their heart. And then later it would become even a bigger project. So mm-hmm. it's more than a, than just a quarter of filmmaking. It, 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 it seems like it was a, a great class just based on, you know, D Jones was talking about his film that he, uh, uh, created because of it. And, you know, I've seen it and, uh, it, it is a, a great piece of work. And so, um, I can only imagine, you know, that, that was a great one. And, and, uh, D's got talent, um, above, you know, on a higher level, but I can only imagine, um, his was the only project I watched. Yeah. But it, it, if the same kind of feeling and, um, and, you know, kind of from the heart, uh, feeling was coming out of those, I mean, inspiration must've been coming out of that class. Yeah, it was. And I was lucky, you know, uh, right place, the right time. And the, and the nice thing about it was finally the digital era and the digital world was at our fingertips. See, before that, we were doing tape or film and it was a slow, long process. Mm-hmm. But once we entered into the digital world and, was, and we were able to digitally edit, uh, then you could make something quicker. And, and it wasn't that expensive, relatively speaking. Right. It was really expensive to shoot film, and it's two or three hundred dollars total to to develop a, um, a four hundred foot roll of film, which is about eleven minutes. Oh wow! So uh, so this digital age meant a lot to filmmaking. So everybody, it broke down a lot of barriers, and Huge. so a lot of good stories are told very quickly, mm-hmm. and uh, that made my job easier. That's something that's been going on with. Uh you know, all these, uh, um, visual arts and, and, uh, and the music, um, the, the digital, digital's just changed it, everything so much. I mean, I couldn't have gotten into recording if it wasn't for the, the ease that, that equipment is now to purchase. Um, you know, you, you can just have a computer, you've got a recording station basically. And, uh, I'm sure it kind of went the same way with, with filmmaking, you know, you've got a computer you've got a film editing station, basically, you know, you don't, you suddenly, you don't need all that gear. Um, it's on a computer. I mean, obviously you get a lot of gear, but the the things you can do, it's really changed, changed everything. It sure has. And it's been for the better for the most part. I think so too. I think so uh, too. And I never thought that digital images could be as beautiful as filmed images if you feel if you use film and, and shoot it right and uh use the right color the light the lights and compose the picture for f- film then you've got you can have a beautiful picture like uh it video could never match uh right. film 
when, right. when you can, if, if it's done right, even video, there was always something a little blippy about it. Digital? It, it, yeah. No, no, not oh. digital tape. Oh, okay. And even when they went from digital to digital tape, it was still, it was okay, but it wasn't up to the great depth of film. Film has such a great depth right. of colors. And so finally now digital is uh, digital pictures are almost as good as, as film. Some people might say they're as good or better. I'm still from the old school, so I'm sort of prejudiced. Well, I, everyone in, in my in my circles, people are, you know, they don't, they're, vinyl is the way that it's out. You know, tape, got to do it on tape and whatever. I, I'm digital. I love digital. I'm digital all the way. Well, I like to listen to vinyl, but uh, I'm I'm glad that we have CDs now. I don't know how long they're going to last. Or I'm glad I can record without having to splice up audio tape anymore. Right. Some some audio technicians might call me a pansy, but whatever. I don't <laughs> want to do that. Well, I cut my teeth on that. Uh, you know, learning the process of. Uh, manipulating and cutting splicing the film and the tape and doing all that and it, it takes time but it's a process and it makes you think while you're doing it so so it was a good way of doing things but it's so much easier now <laughs> but when I started in on this um, uh, I started into this world of recording in a medium mm -hmm. and then later in media I started out with a little two-track recorder that was uh, you could do two tracks of audio and you could sync one of them up with the other. Right. So it's just basically stereo. Then you could sync one track to the other. And then um, then I bought a when I could afford it, I bought a six hundred dollar four-track recorder, a TAC, which uh, finally the prices had come down and four track with quarter inch and that was really affordable that was top of the commercial the uncommercial <laughs> world you know people like me could sit in their living room and record a whole band with four tracks and uh and then i got into filmmaking so let's take that back like when you know were you did, did you get inspired in film as early as um you know childhood uh, high school. Uh, when did that start? What did the What did the You said you just loved the storytelling, um, you know, aspect and the and the and the documentary style of filmmaking. But when did that start? What like and why was there something like maybe I want to tell the story of my area? Was it something like that? Well, yeah, it was. Um, I came from a a very strong family of storytellers. And a, and a very strong community of storytellers. Mm -hmm. um, and and so, um, so the story was always the thing for me, the story. And, and then uh, we didn't have a radio, we didn't have a television until, until I was in the sixth grade. Uh, and so we listened to a lot of radio drama. Mm -hmm. And I love those. Of course, went to the movie every chance I got on a Saturday. I always loved movies. Didn't know what a documentary movie was back in those days. Right. So we're talking about the mid-50s uh, up into the 60s. I, 
I can't remember right now what the first documentary was I ever saw, but it was probably something in the seventh grade with sex education or something I was going like to say, that. closest thing to a, to a documentary back then was probably like a propaganda film or like yeah, an educational, right. like, you know, exactly. anti-marijuana yeah. film. <laughs> this is a documentary. <laughs> well, this was even pre-marijuana, but, uh, but um, I was lucky uh, to get this job in uh, 1973 working for the Appalachian Film Workshop. And they made film, but they hired me to develop a recording studio and, and a theater group. And so I was playing music then, but I became a producer of music mm -hmm. and a storyteller mm -hmm. in, in the theater. And so that's how I got into it. And, and Apple Shop, as we called it, at the Appalachian Film Workshop, uh, we were primarily uh, a documentary production group because uh, that was the easiest thing to do. Uh, nobody wanted to, to make Hollywood films. We wanted to document what was around us mm -hmm. and show it in a different light than what had been portrayed in the big media like CBS, NBC, and ABC came in and made stories of these poor poverty-ridden ridden people and uh, we wanted to show a different side of that right. at Apple Shop. So that was the music, the storytelling, and the documentary films. So uh, some of the first films I worked on, I narrated just as a narrator. And then I played banjo for the soundtrack for a couple of films. Mm -hmm. And then uh, one of the films I'm most proud of is a friend of mine, Mimi Pickering. She made a, a film on the Buffalo Creek flood, the, the disaster that happened in West Virginia that, that drowned and killed 125 people when a dam broke and flooded five or six little communities down the Buffalo Creek holler. And she made a film about that, and I sang the song and narrated the film and played guitar and mandolin on the soundtrack. So that was the first real documentary work I did. And then I went on from there. I was still producing uh, long play records and vinyl mm -hmm. of mostly old-time music, uh, not so much bluegrass, but old-time music with, you know, fiddle, banjo, bass, guitar, uh, very simple kind of music and uh, simple in ways. I mean, you know, we, it wasn't electrified is what right. I mean. Right, right. And so I did a lot of acoustic music at first, and then later we got into some more uh, more sophisticated, technically, uh, blues and that sort of thing. Um, one thing I got to mention here, because it's kind of, I don't know, that you, whenever Jack Wright's name's brought up, I, I always hear someone go, well, and you, did you know he was, he was in that movie Coal Miner's Daughter? <laughs> How'd that happen? Well, I'll tell you about that. I, I had the the uh, I had the, the good fortune to be at the right place at the right time um, on several occasions all through my life. But this particular time about coal miner's daughter, um, in working in Whitesburg, Kentucky, at the Appalachian Film Workshop, um, 
coal miner's daughter that was written by a guy named George Vesey helped Loretta Lynn, one of your cousins. Right. Family uh, member. Family member. Uh, helped her write that book. And uh, George was sort of a friend of ours because he was a New York Times. He wrote for the New York Times. Mm -hmm. And he knew about us a little bit. So we weren't very well known in eastern Kentucky, a little small town. And our music and our <clears throat> films had a very limited non-commercial distribution. Mm -hmm. So not many people knew about us. But uh, VC knew about us. And uh, he was a good friend with one of my mentors. And um, also, he uh, he knew of uh, Michael Apted, who, who ended up directing the film. So when the film was put on production line and said, okay, we're going to make it, about a few months before they started shooting, he came to town to scout out places and find people and resources mm -hmm. because they couldn't uh, shoot it over there where Loretta grew up because it didn't have the look. It had the, you know, there were trailers and the, it just didn't have the old 1940s, 50s look right. that we had in Letcher County and Wise County. And some of these hollers weren't, were pristine and there weren't a lot of trailers in the hollers and, mm -hmm. and things were closer to the old ways in the old days. Right. So he came to Apple Shop, and at that time I was recording uh, an, uh, an old-time swing band, uh, which was, uh, they did Western swing, but they did all acoustic music. It was, mm -hmm. And they were from North Carolina around Asheville, great band, Luke Smathers String Band. And uh, they were performing in my studio uh <clears throat> on the second floor of a of a warehouse and uh he came in and came up and saw them and saw what I was doing and he just hit it off with me and so he used me to uh take him around to places to find uh places to shoot the film mm -hmm. and to introduce him to people that could help him make the film in terms of logistics and resources for instance um a lot of the film was shot, the indoor scenes were shot in a set that was set in the Piggly Wiggly warehouse. And so uh, that was in Virginia. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and, I, and one of the girls that worked at Apple Shop, her family knew Michael Apted because they were from England and he was from England. So there's small world, right. you know. And, and so that's how that came about, that he came and he came to my studio and he was impressed. And, uh, and then he said he wanted me to put together a band for the film. I hadn't read the script yet, so I didn't know what he meant. But later I got a copy of the script and, and, and I had my 15 seconds of fame. Uh, so I was in the film, but more than that, I helped with the film. Right. And the, and I got to know the people who worked on the film and acted in the film. And that was real important too. And I helped bring some talent to the film in terms Absolutely. of, uh, the woman who played Loretta Lynn's mother, uh, was a very close friend of mine and her father was a retired coal miner, Nimrod Workman. And, uh, 
they were good friends of mine and I'd recorded them when I was younger. And so she had an album out with her dad that I produced. <laughs> and uh, when, when Loretta saw a picture of her, uh, it was taken from a tour that, that we went on. Phyllis Bowens played Loretta Lynn's mother. Uh-huh. Phyllis was Nimrod's daughter. Uh-huh. She was married. She's Phyllis Workman Bowens. And uh, Phyllis was, has this incredible voice and a very beautiful country hill-looking woman, like a mountain-looking woman. Dark black hair, high cheekbones, beautiful dark eyes and a great voice. And when Loretta Lynn was looking for someone to play her mother, she she had the she got to pick who played her mother. And we were in New York at the Manhattan Theater Club. Our our theater group was there for a six week run with a play we had written. Uh, there was a photographer there taking pictures and they took a picture of Phyllis and somehow that got to someone who pitched it to someone <laughs> that it ended up being considered. And so Loretta or Loretta and Michael chose Phyllis to be in the movie, even Pointed though she, that had, picture she had never her. acted before. And, and, uh, and she did a great job in the movie. Uh, but she was, you know, a, a mountain person. She wasn't an actor. Yeah. You, that, that's a really great story. I love hearing that. Um, Especially uh, the the uh, about your involvement, because like I said, you know, someone always chimes in sometimes and goes, "Hey, did you hear he was he was in Coal Miner's Daughter?" <laughs> so it's it's cool to hear that you know you were in it, you were in that uh, in it in the band in it, and um, had a little part in there. But but more to hear your your behind the scenes kind of involvement and all those behind the scenes stories. Um, that that sounds sounds like a much uh, a bigger part. I've got and some really great. I don't know how much time we have, but I got some great stories just about working behind the scenes with Coal Miner's Daughter, with with Tommy Lee Jones and and my good friend Levon Helm. The great late Levon Helm was just a a wonderful friend and Sissy Spacek. We got to be really good friends and played a lot of music together during the filming. Is Tommy Lee Jones like as wild of a guy as as like you'd expect him to be? Because he looks like a he seems like he's a firecracker in real life. Well, he is. He he's uh, he's he's uh, can be hot tempered, um, and he uh, he never gave me any trouble. But he was a very interesting man, a little bit quiet, and uh, he paid attention. He's really bright. Mm -hmm. uh, but the first time I met Tommy, uh, I didn't really meet him. Uh, I was going to meet him, and he was there, but. Uh, we were in the middle of my town was this great old colonial hotel called the inn and and that's where this crew started hanging out and living in in the hotel mm -hmm. uh and so the first night i met levon and tommy uh they were having supper with Levon's wife Sandy and Tommy's then girlfriend I don't remember her name uh, but they were having supper and Michael took me over to their table to introduce me to them and uh, said I would be doing some music in the film and uh, and Levon was real friendly and his wife was real friendly and I 
we looked over at Tommy and he had passed out and his head had fallen into his plate. <laughs> so there he was passed out in his plate. And so that sort of set the tone for the rest of the movie in terms of off screen, he was sort of a, a an unpredictable kind of guy. <laughs> Never know. You could look over and his face would be face down in, a, yeah. in his food. Yeah, I, I don't know if it was macaroni or what, but uh, <laughs> but I forgave him for it. In fact, uh, he wasn't very well known then. You know, he hadn't made many movies. And, and a brilliant actor, he should have been nominated for an Academy Award for, for what he did in that movie. He was brilliant. He's he is a brilliant. Actor. And of course, Sissy won an Academy Award yeah. for for her role, and Levon is just good as gold. He he was just wonderful to work with, and we played a lot of music at night. Every night, you know, when we would finish working, we would meet at the end down in the tap room, and we would sit around and drink and have and a little fun, have a little fun, and play music, and it was great. You know, it was really great. And <laughs> You, you, it's such a pleasure to sit here and, and, and talk to you about stories. Um, Can I tell you one more? <laughs> absolutely. I'm not going to stop. Okay. Um, one night we were playing music downstairs, and um, I was teaching everybody this song that my mother taught me. It was called A Thousand-Legged Worm. And it's it's a children's song, but it's really catchy, and it's it's easy to learn, and it's cute. And I was playing it on Jews Harp. And Tommy was there, and he 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 was he was drunk, and and he uh, was, and we were playing, and nobody was paying any attention to him, and so he started throwing chairs around the room, not at anybody, but just mad. Well, uh, he had a limousine driver uh, that was assigned to him, and they were parked out in the parking lot, mm -hmm. and. Uh, and I think his driver just got tired of waiting and just went on up to his room and went to sleep. And so, uh, so the the waitress got Tommy Lee by the ear and pulled him out of the place and kicked him out. And he didn't dare. I mean, she was really. Uh, she was like a mother type, you know. Well, it sounds like grab you by the ear, yeah, and, and she, you out. She said, "Tommy Lee, you got to quit this stuff." And get on out of here. And she she put him out. And then the next day we had a scene that we were going to have to shoot uh, in mid-morning. Mm -hmm. And um, and so Tommy Lee went on and we never saw him. You know, that he, he went on. And we didn't think anything about it. But next day we're out in the woods. It's the burial scene for uh, Loretta's dad that they go out there with a bulldozer and cut a a trail to bury the dad right. and then uh so we're out there waiting and tommy lee is playing the dad so he has to drive the the uh the bulldozer uh -huh. and um and he, ke he kept not showing up and not showing up and that, this was before cell phones right uh and uh so Tommy leave. I, finally, we found out that he, he had been in jail that night. Oh shit! He had gone on to another bar, and and raised some more ruckus, and then he got in his car and started driving back to home or wherever he was staying, and got pulled over by the cops. And one of the cops that was going to arrest him, he started giving him back talk in the 
cop pulled out his blackjack and hit Tommy Lee oh, in the in the forehead with it. And so the blood started coming out and they handcuffed him and, and took him to jail. And, uh, of course, he made the news <laughs> uh, because that was a big deal, you know, with one of your stars oh, yeah. in the county gets locked up. So finally that afternoon he showed up and we, we went ahead and shot the scene, but we all had to wait and wait until he got there. And they were able to patch that place up and the, the swelling had gone down enough where you couldn't notice it. Makeup. But he, he was really bummed out about that guy hitting him with the blackjack. <laughs> So that's my Tommy Lee story. That's a good one. Oh, oh, and further, Tommy Lee later after um, after he made the great uh, made-for-television movie Lonesome Dove with Robert Duvall, mm -hmm. uh, he then made another, he's from Texas, and he made another cowboy movie, and he used my mother's song and sang it in that movie. Uh, really? it, I mean, it's not her song, but it's how he learned it because he learned it from me. Right. And it's uh, called A Thousand-Legged Worm. And he sings it like riding his horse down the road, you know, just casually <laughs> sings a song. It's real short. And uh, so I felt like, wow, the oral tradition lives. <laughs> <laughs> that is. That's a hell of a story to come around then, too, because that's the song you're teaching everyone when he came in and started throwing a chair around. Yeah. Come full 360. That's a hell of a... Like I said, you, I get... I could seriously listen to your stories for a long time, I am sure. Yeah, I could probably tell you that many Levon stories and that many sissy stories, <laughs> especially Levon. We we maintained a relationship up until he died. I mean, we we were good friends. I want to pull it back a little bit and say, so you know, you you've I said in the introduction, uh, you've done you've been involved in so much. Um, uh, and, and it's and it's great to hear these kind of stories and that you're one of these people. Um, you know, I don't know whether you know it or not, whether how you feel about it, but you're making Athens Athens. Uh, you're part of why Athens Athens. Uh, you play a lot of music. Uh, I've seen you at, at parties, uh, at, at places playing music like uh, with uh, with Junebug uh, and, and um, you, when did you come to Athens? Oh, okay. Uh it's really interesting how we got to Athens, um, my wife and I. It was 1985, and we were sort of burnt out. It was during Reagan's administration, and it was getting harder and harder to raise money. I worked at a nonprofit, and my wife, uh, Sharon Hatfield, uh, at that time was working for the Coalfield Progress, which is a weekly newspaper that had just gone to two days a week, sort of like what the Athens News does now. And uh, and so they had to write, go collect the stories, write the stories, and then paste the paper up and put it out. It was sort of pre-computer. They finally did get computerized uh, in an 83 or 84, but 1983 or 84, but she was sort of burnt out and I was sort of burnt out and it was hard to raise money because of Reaganomics. Mm -hmm. uh, they had cut back uh, the humanities money that, that we were trying to raise. And I had a cousin who had come up to Ohio University to go to school. And she and her husband invited us up for a weekend in early April, and it was beautiful weather. So we came to Athens, and we just fell in love with the place. 
So what had been a Friday, Saturday, Sunday venture, we went to Burr Oak Lake and we went to different places and we just liked the town. And plus things were fairly cheap in the town. You know, uh, back then, uh, you could buy a mixed drink for two and a half, three dollars. And where we came from, you know, it was five or six. So we thought, wow, that's that's interesting. Some I've always felt about this area is that, you know, whenever this country and I see on the news that we're having some recession or something like that, you never feel it around here because no, it's I'm just sure. always poor and, and, and cheap around here. So yeah. when we're in a recession, we don't really have any clue in Athens. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's people who are uh, are poor here and they're always in a recession. But uh, but a lot of us are fortunate not to be in that situation. But anyway, uh, so we liked it so much, we stayed over on Monday and Sharon went to the journalism school to see about graduate school, and I went to the film school to see about graduate school. Mm -hmm. So the people at the film school knew me, some of them did, because I had mixed my film that, that was released the year before. Uh, it was a country music film. I had mixed it in Cleveland, and some of the film school, Ohio University's film school staff was at the same uh, recording studio where we mixed soundtracks when I was there. So they saw my film and and knew who I was because of that encounter. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so I got a, to make a long story short, I got a a graduate assistantship and she got a graduate assistantship and we started to school that fall in 1985 and so I, f I finished my coursework and then I moved to Columbus and Sharon lived here in the house that we rented and I, w I came home on the weekends from the Ohio Arts Council I worked up there and uh, so we liked Athens a lot so it Finally, in 1989, we figured out a way to come back here. I got a job at the film school. They asked me to uh, apply for a job here mm -hmm. as a, a lecturer and equipment manager. So I came down, and then Sharon came down and finished up her degree, and I finished up my thesis. And and so we got our degrees. If we hadn't have come back down here, I don't think we would have finished our degrees. We'd done all the coursework, but we just didn't do the dissertation. Right. So Sharon wrote a book, which is very highly successful, won a couple of uh, major writing awards with that. And uh, and I finished my, my work on a documentary, and then I started teaching documentary here. Right and writing and fundraising and developing that uh yeah. that class that you were talking about yeah and then back then the the atmosphere around town was much like it is now but uh there was uh uh there was the seven sauces had a downstairs and they used to have music in there so john hutchison would play there mm -hmm. i would play there several other people would play there you know, a couple of sets once every two or three months, you know. Right. And then I played some at Casa when it was smaller before it got to be the big uh, right. cantina. Uh, and uh, 
played a lot at O'Hooley's. O'Hooley's was the first place I ever really played. Yeah, that's uh, and uh, first place for a lot of people. And it it was a lot of fun. Uh, they had, it was basically you know an open mic situation, and that was great. And great audience, and of course, a lot of my friends would come out from film school to to mm-hmm. hear me sing, and and that was fun. And then I got to know a lot of the music community, including we called him John Hutchison, and then later I th- he had a nickname too, but J.D. Hutchison, I think, right. is what he goes yeah, by now, and he he's a, a legendary, talented man, absolutely, a, a very unique. Uh, resource in this town he's just one of the most creative people i've ever been around yeah absolutely um and of course stars he's one of those guys that i i you know yeah i get kind of starstruck there's there's a few people in that group jack jack you're one of them you're in that group also (laughs) well i i wish i could ride half as good as he does um but then there was the local girls there was bruce dalzell and his band was still playing then uh the uh Let's see the Hollywood Prince Princes of Hollywood. I think, right? I think that was the name of the group. They were p- still playing some then. It was before they finished playing, and uh, uh, just just a real supportive community here. And and absolutely, and, and we still love it. I I don't play out as much anymore. In fact, I don't play much music at all anymore. But uh, but I still love this community. You just you know, you just named a, a sort of an era of, uh, of great, uh, local musicians that have played, uh, around here and, and made Athens, uh, one of, uh, the most awesome music towns I've, I've been to little, little music town. Uh, it's got such, uh, a, a great pulse. Just, uh, it, it, it has a pulse. The music lives in this city and you helped grow it with all those guys. You guys helped grow it. Definitely. Um, awesome cast you named about every single person i want to get on here as a guest and great get and don't here. don't forget bob montalto i'm trying he, everyone he, he might be hard to get on here but he he's a, a real talent too you who's know? that bob montalto he's a piano player and uh i first heard of him when um uh john um uh, let's see uh, John Hammond Jr., uh-huh. uh, the blues singer, uh, he played on a, an album that I had, and uh, he, <clears throat> John Hammond put out the album, but uh, but he played piano for John Hammond on that album, okay. Bob Montalto. Uh-huh. And so when I first met him, he was washing dishes at Seven Sauces and playing piano in a few little bands here and there. Awesome. Yeah. And he's a great talent. Yeah, that's a name I wasn't I wasn't aware of, but pointing me in the direction. I'm I'm gonna be taking notes here, listening to this. Well, he's one of the early ones, out, Bob. He he's he's an early one, right? One of the early it ones. Sounds like we are gonna take another break now. We're gonna listen to some more music. Um, we are gonna listen to this song, "Cloud of Red." Um, I understand you spent some time uh, in Vietnam, and this song is about. Uh, uh, that it's it's a it's a Vietnam song, um, and you said you were wanting to kind of talk about it a little bit because just out of context, I don't know maybe yeah, it needs yeah, a little just, bit with it. Yeah, I mean the the song stands alone, but I always when I sing it, I introduce it, mm-hmm. and um, I was in the first Air Cavalry Division from 
1966, and then I got out of Vietnam and out of the Army in August of 1967. And, um, and so we, I did night patrol with the MPs, and we also did some, some stuff that I'm not going to talk about much. But one night I was on night patrol making sure that uh, no one put bombs or uh, anything in the road overnight, like dig a hole and put a bomb in it and then blow a truck up as it went over it the next day. And so I was walking up the road um, in the in the front of the line, you know, uh, walking point, as they say. And uh, way in the distance, I could hear this sweetness, this noise that was really sweet. And then the closer I got, and, and I'm walking up this dirt road, uh, sandy, not muddy, and these palm trees are just hanging over like a tunnel, you know, going up the road. And the closer I walked, the, the more uh, I could hear it. And I had a little flashlight that, that we would use for signaling the guys behind us. Uh, and so as I got closer, I re realized it was music, but it was real soft music. It was beautiful. And so I, I gave the guys behind me a signal to stop because I wanted to go see what was going on. Mm -hmm. And it was over on, it was in a little thatched hutch, uh, little, uh, just a little house and the front door was open, but they didn't even have, uh, windows or anything. It was like a, a bamboo hut mm -hmm. with a thatched roof. And I went in and I peered through the window and, and by candlelight, I could see there were three men sitting, uh, down on the floor with their knees crossed, uh, not, not their knees crossed, but they were sitting sort of in a yoga position mm -hmm. and they were making music. And one of them was playing this little strange instrument that was, uh, triangular shaped. It was almost like a fiddle, but he was playing it and it was on the floor and it, and it had a, a neck on it and he was playing it with a bow and it was making this incredible sound that I'd never heard before. It was very, uh, Asian sounding. It, it wasn't like the pentameter that we're used to. It wasn't, uh, it, it was like that. It, it was right. not notes that we generally use in the West. Mm -hmm. And it was just hypnotic. And then another guy was humming or saying something along with it. And they had some incense and it was burning. And uh, I don't know if they were doing anything else other than the incense, but it was just this thing in the in the middle of the night here here I am and they don't they're so into their music they don't know or care if I'm there and I didn't make any noise I just watched them right. and finally then I had to you know go back and take care of my business and and you know work work and go on up the road with my guys mm -hmm. because we were on detail right and so anyway that made a huge impression on me it's like one of the biggest impressions that I had. And, uh, it was not too long after that, that, um, 
I was involved in a something that has bothered me my whole life, and um, and so that's about this song that I wrote called "Cloud of Red," and it has to do with the shooting of a prisoner, uh, a Vietnamese prisoner, and um, and I try to tell the story uh, from third person from the point of view of uh, the uh, third person telling the story of what this soldier is going through. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, it took me, took me 10 years to write the song. Uh, I struggled with uh, writing it when I came back. I wrote a short story about it and that wasn't any good. And then, uh, then one night I was working in my studio and then all of a sudden, it was real late at night, and I might have had a beer or two. Uh, there was nobody in the studio. I was there by myself. In fact, I was in the control booth with my guitar. I wasn't in the, right. the, the soundproof area of the studio. And all of a sudden, this song started coming out of me. And I'd never experienced this before. It came out in rhyme. And it came out as the story as I envisioned it. It came out in rhyme, and all I was doing is like being a stenographer almost. Right. I mean, I did have to stop once or twice and think, but but it it, it, it just was almost like dictation. And I don't know where it was out. coming from, except it was coming from my subconscious. And so that's called The Cloud of Red. Great story. Amazing. So this is it. We're starting out here, Cloud of Red. We're going to listen to two songs. Also another song, uh, Blind Marie, Mother Payroll Boys, following it up. But thank you for that story. That uh, I just want to say that that image, too, of, of, of the, the, the people in, in the hut, uh, into their music, like you said, so, so into it or whatever, to not even, just how you said it, not even know or, or even care uh, that you're around. Um, that uh, I can only... I can only imagine uh, what that was. Yeah, it was a one in a lifetime thing. Right. It just it really affected me in a, in a very spiritual way. Absolutely, it. Uh, it's how that's how it sounds like. Uh, we're listening to "Cloud of Red" by Jack Wright, and then also "Blind Marie," a song by his band, the Payroll Boys. You're listening live on View from the Hill, www.viewfromthehill.com. Finger up. Yes, sir. Uh, on Cloud of Red, Johnny Borchard and uh, Mark Hellenberg are also playing on that. I'm playing guitar, and, and, and Johnny's playing slide guitar, and Hellenberg is playing uh, almost like a bongos. Great, great to know that. Big shout-out to John Borchard and Mark Hellenberg. So we're going to listen to these two songs. We'll be right back on View from the Hill. If John Wise came traveling down the road Looking for old friends to help him with his load Caught up in a war over in Vietnam Praying for forgiveness 
He's a full-grown man Born in the hills of the old Virginia South Where we learn to love his country And never open his mouth Don't get me wrong He loved his neighbors and kin But in these changing times It's hard to tell The devil from a friend When Johnny reached the shore It was early in the spring There were hundreds just like him And they all began to scream Lord, save our souls from death Save our souls from fear We'll gladly serve our country And we'll be back home in a year The day that he remembers most Was the fourth day of July He was guarding prisoners And I cannot tell you why An old, old man He began to run He was looking for his freedom But Johnny got his gun Well, the old man hit the river It was such a sight to see The other prisoners cheered him on They wanted him to be free Johnny took his aim And he saw that old gray head And when he squeezed the trigger He saw a cloud of red Right there in front of him Before his very eyes He saw his own grandfather and heard his mournful cry. And that was the last thing old Deaf Johnny heard. And all of his old friends say that he never speaks a word. Deaf John Wise is a traveling down your road. Looking for old friends to help him with his load. Caught up in a war over in Vietnam, praying for forgiveness. He's a full-grown man. Every morning just as dawn is waking up the night The all-night grill is nearly filled with people out all night And blind Marie waits patiently on the streets with a steel guitar Play that Jesus song for me Blind Marie Thank you. 
sun Singing voodoo chimes and holy rhymes Till the longest day is done She burned out fast from the inside out On that smooth Jamaica run Play that Jesus song for me Blind Marie Knows everybody passing by on the street She can hear their names in the shuffle of their feet Her morning songs make the sun come up Put a dime in her old hen cup And play that Jesus song for me Blind Marie Rainy day, she always plays a song of where she's been Full of gypsy lies that could make you cry To hear them all again But she's been gone for just so long That I can't remember when I've heard that Jesus song for me Blind Marie Songs make the sun come up Put a dime in her old tin cup And play that Jesus song for me Blind Marie Blind Marie Blind from the hill www.viewfromthehill.com i've been here with jack wright it has been an absolute pleasure sir it's been a fun one well it sure has been an honor to to do this and i like how you do this show i've never been involved in in podcasts before so i'm i'm old man learning a new trick here hey it's fine way. some people might not even say it's a true podcast because you know we're shooting off the hip we're we're doing this live uh you know no no editing and then it's just on there people listen to it and and they hear what happens so it, it's it's been good to get you to, to get to know you again more better whatever it is i've known you for so long you were just saying you knew me uh when i was on the 
uh, on the first street house back when I was like six. You yeah. were wondering when I was in high school. I said 97. You said, whoa. <laughs> know me for a little bit longer than that. So it's good. Yeah. We, uh, I, I, I really like to, to sit here and have this conversation with you. It's been great. You have a little bit live for us, I heard. You wanted to come here and, and play a few songs live. Is that correct? That's, uh, I could be talked into that. All right. Well, I think we could do with a few, two or three, something like that. You got you got enough for that? I think so. All right. Well, you might hear a little rustle and bustle. I'm going to move these microphones around. And uh, Jack Wright, take it away, sir. And uh, interested to hear what you brought. Well, uh, I think I'll play um, the Juice Harp or the Jews Harp or the Appalachian Jaw Harp first. And, and then I'll pick up my acoustic guitar and maybe do maybe one or maybe two songs um but uh i wanted to to, uh, do a song that i mentioned earlier it's it's the first song i ever learned my mother taught it to me when i was just like three years old and it and she was explaining what i was seeing out in the yard it was a it was a learn a worm, but I'd never I'd seen earthworms, but I'd never seen a worm like this worm before. And I asked her what it was, and she said, "Why, Jackie, that's a thousand-legged worm." And I guess what it was is a millipede or a, something like that, and uh, and it had all these creepy arms on it, and it was just sort of creeping along. So she sang this song, and of course she didn't play Jews harp, but I added that later. So here we go. This is. One of my favorite songs, very simple. Said the thousand-legged worms, he began to squirm. Has anybody seen the leg of mine? If it can't be found, I'll have to hop around. I'm the other 999. Hop around, hop around. I'm the other 999. If it can't be found, I'll have to hop around. I'm the other 999. Well, I had a little chicken as you wouldn't lay an egg, so I poured hot water up and down her leg. And the little chicken cried, and the little chicken begged. Little chicken laid me a hard-boiled egg. Turkey in the straw, how boys howl. Turkey in the hay, hay girls, hey. Bullfrog dancing with his mother-in-law. Sing a little song called Turkey in the Straw. <laughs> So anyway, that's some foolishness. Uh, maybe somebody enjoyed that and laughed a little bit, I hope. Please tell me that that's the song Tommy Lee Jones was singing. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> that's the one he sang. It was the easiest for him to remember. <laughs> well, after, uh, well, 
<laughs> after getting hit on the head. I can't <laughs> believe he, he remembered that song. <laughs> well, um, I wanted to play a tune, not one that I wrote, but one that I like a lot. <clears throat> and it sort of dates me and tells you where I'm from. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> it's uh, one, by one of my favorite songwriters. While digesting readers digest In the back of a dirty bookstore A plastic flag with gum on the back Fell out on the floor Well, I picked it up, went outside Sapping on my window shield And if I could see old Betsy Ross Tell her how good I feel but your flag to cow won't get you into anymore. They're already overcrowded from your dirty little war. And Jesus don't like killing, no matter what the reason's for. And your flag to cow won't get you into heaven anymore. Well, I went to the bank this morning. And the cashier said to me, If you'll join our Christmas club, we'll give you ten of them flags for free. Well, I didn't mess around a bit, took him up on what he said. And I stuck them stickers all over my car, one on my wife's forehead. But your flag to cow won't get you into heaven anymore. We're already overcrowded from your dirty little war. And Jesus don't like killing, no matter what the reason's for. And your flag to cow won't get you into heaven anymore. Well, I got my window shield so filled with flags I could not see. So I ran my car upside the curb, riding to a tree. By the time they got a doctor down, I was already dead. And I'll never understand why that man standing in the pearly gates said, He said, your flag to cow won't get you into heaven anymore. They're already overcrowded from your dirty little war. Jesus don't like killing, no matter what the reason's for. And your flag the cow won't get you into heaven anymore. So I think that'll do it for me. Uh, I've enjoyed being here. And I have enjoyed having you. That was awesome. That was amazing. Jack Wright. We're going to take it away now with one more from the Payroll Boys. It's 90 years old. You got a little funny stuff to say about that, too. I heard that it got it got banned in some places. It sure did. It, uh, <laughs> I got banned right here in Athens, uh, <laughs> but I still play it and sing it. We're also going to take uh, uh, a few of, the, uh, of those songs that were on that, that project of yours. 
music of coal. It's mining songs from the Appalachian coal field. And like we were saying, there's uh, volume one and volume two. Volume one is uh, sort of starts at the older stuff and it takes you to volume two, which brings you to sort of uh, more modern artists doing the same genre and sound. So we're going to have a couple songs off that. Um, two off of volume one and two off of volume two. We got uh, Prayer of a Miner's Child. Uh, that's by Doc Boggs. Uh, we also got the L and N don't stop here anymore, and uh, really great songs, really amazing um, uh, uh, tunes. But like I was saying, uh, they tell a sad little story. They they do tell a sad story. Uh, and we're gonna take it to volume two to two other tracks. And we're gonna listen to "There Will Be No Black Lung Up in Heaven." That's by the Reverend Joe Freeman, and also. Uh, one of my favorites that I've been rocking out to actually and, and jamming and and uh, and uh, dancing to, even though like, hey, these these are depressing kind of 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 songs. They do tell a story that sort of is a little tough, but they're fun. And I've been dancing to this one called "Deep Mind Blues" by Nick Stump. All right, it's got a good, yeah. it's got a great sound to it, and that's a, a a great project. Once again, that's called "Music of Coal," uh, mining songs from the Appalachian coal fields. Uh, project that Jack Wright uh, produced and put together. Uh, absolute, uh, uh, a great project, uh, great music. And uh, if you've never heard of it, do a little Google search. Go out there. Is any anyone can anywhere specific that they can uh, uh, pick it up at? Is there somewhere specific they could go? It's, it's out of print now, so you might be able to get it on eBay. Oh, limited edition. Yeah, is what it is. Jack, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Um, you know, maybe we'll do this again one of these days. Yeah, it's it's been wonderful, and uh, I'm I'm glad to reach your audience. And uh, thanks a lot. It's been really enjoyable and easy to do. Absolutely, it's been so much fun, folks. We're out of here. It's been Jack Wright with me. We've heard uh, about about his his comings and goings, a lot of ins and outs. <laughs> He's been involved in a lot, and it was a pleasure and, and such a blast. It was live on View from the Hill. You can listen viewfromthehill.com. Uh, it's in the iTunes podcast app. You can subscribe. It's on SoundCloud. Jack, it's been a pleasure. Have a good night, folks. He's just a no coal miner, Lord. That's all he's ever been. He's worked his life up. Way in the mines with all the other men. So keep him safe and be with him when he goes into the mine. And also help him stay away from the unemployment line. By his side in all he does, he's a gallant tart, you know. His hair is changing color fast, and his ages begin to show. Earth and I'll be left behind. 
many leaves I hope it's not cold by that old coal mine Stay by his side and all he does I don't want him to be sad He called your Lord I thank you know this coal miner is my dad Son, you go to school, learn your letters Don't you be no dusty miner Like me For I was born and raised at the mouth of the hazard holler Coal cars roaring and rumbling past my door Now they're standing rusty, rolling empty But now he goes downtown with empty pockets And his face is white as a February snow And I was born and raised at the mouth of the hazard holler Coal cars roaring and rumbling to pass my door Now they're standing rusty rolling empty Get my payday like I done before Them old cudsy vines that covered up the doorway And there was trees and grass Well, a-growing right through the floor Well, I never thought I'd live to love the coal dust Never thought I'd pray to hear the tipple roar Grass could change to money. Them greenbacks fill my pockets once more. And I was born and raised at the mouth of the hazard holler. Coal cars roaring and rumbling to pass my door. Now they're standing rusty, rolling empty.
dedicate this song to all the coal miners that have spent most of their lives under the mountain digging for coal. Well, I can remember my dad, who was a country preacher. Also, he worked in the coal mines to raise his family of nine children. Well, I seen my dad go uh, early in the morning and come back home late at night. Why, he would be so tired that he would just sit down by the old coal stove until bedtime. Dad was a strong young man, but as the years passed by, his shoulders began to bend and his brown hair became gray. Well, I seen the lights in Dad's bedroom many a time, and I'd go in and I'd say, Dad, what's wrong? He would say, I'm smothering, son. And he didn't realize then that he was dying from that dreaded disease called black lung. There'll be no black lung up in heaven. No smothering when they walk on streets of gold. The coal miners that make it in will be breathing good again.
sing the song however you choose You go to work when the whistle blows Singing those deep and blues You go to work when the whistle blows Singing those deep Sometimes I feel one half alone, but the other half's here and it's raring to go. I know a pretty little widow with a hair like gold. Cause I'm 90 years old and I'm courting today. 90 years old and I'm on my way. I can't play the fiddle like I used to could, but I can roll in the hay like everyone should. When the boys up the holler all giggle at me, I guess they'll laugh till eternity. I ain't just born, but I sure ain't dead. I got a clean white shirt and my blood's still red. Cause I'm 90 years old and I'm courting today. 90 years old and I'm on my way. I can't play the fiddle like I used to could, but my bow's still straight and it's hard as wood. You like to go with me, my friend? We'll get right down to some old time sin. Me no flowers when I'm through. Just give them to a girl named Susie Q. Cause I'm 90 years old and I'm courting today. 90 years old and I'm on my way. I can't play the fiddle like I used to could. But my bow's still straight and it's hard as wood. 